banned in Belarus. That's us. Restricted <laughs> in Russia. Again. What are we going to do, Mike? I don't know. I, I, I don't think we're completely banned in those places. It's just YouTube, right? Yeah, that's all. Yeah, and we don't even have a video on them, so. Regular listeners will know that in the past couple episodes, we started finally sharing audio clips of the music that we discuss here. Yeah. And that's no problem for regular audio podcast hosting. However, just for convenience and mm. to hopefully catch a new audience, we also put up the podcast on YouTube because it's easy yeah. to share there. But there is a possibility we may do video one day. We could. We don't, sure. You don't know, you know. Well, we have a total of six subscribers on YouTube. Yeah. Once in a while, we'll have an episode that catches a big audience there, probably for whatever they're searching for. But uh, YouTube does an automatic scan for copyrighted material when you upload something. And so the last uh, episode we did, it came back with <laughs> a message that the classical music was copyrighted. Well, only one of them. Only one of them. Right. And I'm not going to say who it was, but it was the the biggest of the labels. Let's right. just say that, that we talked about. And it was banned in Belarus and restricted in Russia. Yeah. David went for the alliteration there. How do you like that? And although we do have quite a few Russian listeners from time to time. We've never had a download from Belarus, so... Oh, that's right. So I guess uh, that band just kind of went under the bus there. I guess It just so. didn't uh, have any effect. Now, interestingly, most of the jazz that I pick, or jazz in general, the whole albums are available on YouTube. You know, mm. for no charge, anyone can listen to the full album. So that's not a problem. And YouTube actually linked those full videos to our episode. So anyone who mm. wants to go and listen to the full cut of the track can do so there. Anyway, if it's an inconvenience to any of the listeners, you can always come over and listen to us someplace else on a regular podcast service. You're listening to the Adult Music Podcast, where we bring you music for the mature mind. That's classical music, jazz music, the best of the new releases. Six releases every week, three classical and three jazz. I'm Russ handling the jazz side. Yeah, and this is Mike on the classical side. And I think I should say, uh, not necessarily the best new releases, just the ones that really caught our ear. And a lot of them are a little off the beaten path because we just want people to expand out, you know, because sometimes I'll leave major classical releases off just because uh, I know everybody's going to hear them. I'm the same way in jazz. Yeah. If there's a recording that's, you know, been all in the main jazz press, I figure people probably know about it already. I'll go a little bit deeper, a couple different layers, lesser known artists or artists from other locales around the globe and try to find something I think is interesting and you might yeah. not find anywhere else. I think that's one of the places where, you know, we have some extra appeal. Anyway, for all the recordings I'm going to talk about, all the recordings Mike's going to talk about, in the episode description, you can find links to that music. You want to listen to the whole thing. That's what we recommend. There's Spotify there, Apple Music for all that music. And also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place in CD quality on Deezer. That's streaming music from France. They also have our podcast there as well. You can get everything in one place. Now, if you can't see the full description or recording links aren't active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything's clear and easy to follow for this and all past episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, follow us, subscribe wherever you listen to us, tell a friend. We'd be happy to get new listeners that way. Take a moment. Give us a little ranking, write a short review. We could use some more reviews on Apple Podcasts. We've sort of stopped yeah. 
uh, collecting new reviews there that will help us get listed in the recommendations you you'd think we'd be getting more now that we're doing those music samples although that's still a new thing we've only done it for two, two episodes so far this is going to be the third one yeah we'll have to keep going on that and mm. see if that has any effect and also come over and follow us on facebook we've got a page there you can get extra info and new releases throughout the week in the past two days i put up more than a dozen september 15th was a huge release date in jazz and I only put up the best ones. I thought I had about five times that many. If you want to get something new to listen to throughout the week, you can come up there and check that out. You can see our interaction with the artists. We got a nice thank you message from Danny Jonokuchi about his Voices big band album from last week. And you can also leave us a message there or a comment. You can see our handsome faces. Yeah. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, you can do so by email as well. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com we also want to recommend our friends on another podcast that's same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard that's aj and johnny they look at several versions of the same jazz standard in each episode comes out twice a month they play little snippets from each version talk about the history of the original look at the different versions what they like what they don't like there's a link to their podcast in the description and if you stick around to the end of the episode you can check out their little promo and i'm happy to say that our guest episode no we're gonna yeah our next episode we're yeah. gonna be uh finally talking to them aj and johnny are gonna be here and we're gonna call it the standards summit that's a good name do we do we have a name for this one not yet <laughs> we're a little behind it may come up as we go along <laughs> Anyway, so. we're going to have two <laughs> albums of new music with mostly jazz standards, and Mike's going to hit him with some classical, some Ravel. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering how that's going to go. We'll have to see. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, we'll get a little bit of their backstory for our listeners, how they got started on their podcast. I think they started right. in 2018. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get their input on both classical and jazz music. That's going to be a lot of fun. So that'll be the next episode, episode 133. Yeah. So check that out. You can also get the full playlist for that. It's going to be a little shorter. It'll be a little <laughs> bit shorter, hopefully, right? We couldn't make them run the Iron Man marathon that we run every week, so we just gave them the regular marathon. Right. <laughs> now tonight, later in the second half of the jazz part of the episode, I've got a debut, a genre debut, a return, new Greek jazz, two drummers as leaders, and something from the Odrodek label, which is always interesting. And that's all in just three albums. Wow. How about on the classical side tonight, Mike? I've got three classical albums. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, they're pretty, I don't know, they're interesting. Yeah. I, I think I'd just rather go through them, like, one by one. Let's just say we have uh, a little Baroque guitar. We have some uh, winds, and I wanted to do this because we don't do enough winds here. This is an ensemble we've done before. It's like Czech music for winds. And then mm. we have a forgotten Swedish composer whose uh, music is now being recorded, from a 20th century Swedish composer. A lot of that more harmonic melodic music from the 20th century just right. didn't get performed because of the uh the avant-garde was in charge that's kind of falling away now now scholars are going back and kind of looking and through I'm the happy. ruins and yeah and there's a lot of it turns out there was a lot of good yeah, music you could have stuff. heard you know if the concert halls weren't taken over by 12 tones <laughs> yeah people hitting the sides of a piano with a big hammer or something <laughs> <laughs> Because people think of classical music you hear today, they talk about it as being kind of, oh, elite and stuff like that. 
but it, it always had that elite sort of feel. But everybody listened to it, or a lot of people did before right. World War II, and it was really after World War II that it just fell away in popularity. Right, and I think it was because of the avant-garde because it just scared everybody away. There was really, there was really great stuff happening between the wars you know, in classical music because it was combining the the more elite sort of like form-driven and you know kind of music with uh, popular music melodies and things like that. Yeah. You know, so it was kind of it was really interesting then. But of course, these are popular music melodies that now we don't remember. So I mean, yeah. we don't really get that when we hear these. Right. So people like us would point these things out to you. All right, before we get started, I want to kind of mention a little classical music news that I'm kind of edgy about. The Beast label, one of my favorite labels, mm. I just love their whole presentation. They're now putting their CDs out in... Um, these kind of cardboard cases. They don't use the jewel case anymore. Okay. Maybe they do on occasion. But and I, to be honest, I like that better because it takes up less yeah, space, space on the shelf and they don't break, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those jewel <laughs> cases break. What a pain in the neck, you know? Do I don't you remember know. remember a couple of years idea. ago, yeah. I ordered like a whole box yeah. of jewel I, cases I, and we I have some them. on my shelf here because, yeah. um, you know, when the jewel case breaks, you replace yeah. it, and the CD will like fall out and you right. know, get scratched up. You're always dropping one by accident, and then yeah, well, yeah, they even come damaged sometimes because sometimes, they yeah. you know they get knocked mm-hmm. around in the mail. And not only that, but Beast, most of its releases come on Super Audio CD, so you get three layers: you get the two-channel CD, two-channel Super Audio CD, and then five-channel Super Audio CD. So you can choose which you want to listen to. Right. Super Audio CD is double the sampling rate of a CD, and it just has a little bit more tightness to it. There's more focus on the tone, I think, for that. And I just love that. It just sounds really nice and clean, especially if you get a great recording. And if you're lucky enough to have uh, surround and you're listening, then you get this big, spacious kind of sound that's really wonderful. Uh, the rear channels are usually used for just ambience. You just hear the back of the hall. <laughs> you know, But right. it gives you a little bigger um, sound. So I really love those um, Beast releases, and uh, salute to the soon-to-be-retiring, I guess, Robert von Barr, who is the uh, the head of Beast Records, I mean, I think since the beginning. He's now 80 years old, oh. and uh, I remember when I was working in uh, classical radio in the 80s, like hearing interviews with him about how he never wanted to like uh, take anything out of... Um, print and stuff like that so he just kept the entire catalog available i mean these days i guess he could just put them up on um streaming and you know right but i don't i doubt all those are still in print but i'm not sure and he's he's really passionate he even wrote back to me about a issue i I had uh right just recently we had our beef with deezer yeah (laughs) missing tracks yeah not only that but the next week all those tracks went back up so i guess he had his uh battalions out there making sure those releases got up the iron (laughs) fist of beasts yeah, he's he's fantastic. He's really passionate. I've heard several interviews with him. He's just really passionate about music. The news is that Beast has now sold their operation to Apple, mm. the computer company. And I got to tell you, this rather worries me because right now, the Beast product, the CDs at least, are just at their peak. They've never been better than they are now. They're getting great recordings. I love the Super Audio, Audio CDs. There's some really great releases on that. They've always been good, but I mean... Mm. I just feel like right now they're kind of in a little bit of a golden age, and now they're going to uh, Apple. Now, Apple has a new kind of emerging classical like streaming service that's all right. classical, but I mean, what are they going to do? I, I haven't been happy with anything Apple has done since Steve Jobs died. You know, <laughs> I, you know, there was the iPhone. When Steve Jobs was around, 
Apple just kept coming out with this new stuff, and it was really exciting. And then yeah. he died, and they, they didn't come out with anything. They really haven't put out anything new since, really. You know, they're just kind of updating old stuff, and it's kind of annoying me because um, <laughs> it's, well, the thing that it's worries making my me, stuff obsolete. And mm. one of the things that I like about using Deezer is Deezer is a small company, and yeah. all they do is stream music, right? They have their right. faults, but Apple, Amazon... They don't care about music, really, I don't believe. They want yeah. you to buy stuff. <laughs> yeah. They want you to buy new iPhones and other things. And mm. so they use music as a means to get you to buy other kinds of products. So I really yeah. worry about putting the music first for these companies and what decisions will be made. Yeah, and as a big CD collector, I worry that these BCDs are just going to sort of fall off or at least not be... Uh, the expense to make a super audio CD recording won't be uh, made anymore right. and things. I would hate to see that happen because I just love these releases. Beast is the only label that puts out it's, it's either every album or at least 90%. There are a lot come out on super audio mm. CD. Now those can play on a CD player if you happen to have one. So there's no problem with that but you just get all that extra. If you have a super audio CD player you just get that extra high sampling rate and uh, I just find that wonderful. Okay so we're crossing our fingers for Beast. And uh, thank you, Robert Von Barr, for your tenure yeah. at Beast Records. It's a fantastic label. We love it. And I've loved it since the 1980s when I first discovered it, <laughs> working in classical music radio in Boston. <laughs> Let's talk about that with uh, AJ and Johnny one day. Yeah. My early days. All right. Let's get into the music. We've already... Um, <laughs> these these podcasts have been getting longer. Not, and it isn't because of the music samples. It's because we've been <laughs> doing these long intros. All right, let's get into the music. My first album is um, a record called, um, or maybe a CD. I should push the CD. I don't have the CD of this. I heard it on Deezer. Uh, called uh, Paris 1790, La Musique de Monsieur Vidal. And this is by Pascal Valois on the Baroque guitar. And he's got a lot of help on this album, too. I guess I should mention everybody. Uh, Jacques-André Houl plays the violin on the sonatas and the concerto pour la guitare. We're going to hear, I'll mention him again. Olivia B. Brault has a violin on the concerto. Amanda Kismat on the cello. Jesse Dubé on the viola. And Jean-Guy Coté on the Baroque guitar. I don't know when he plays. Actually, I can't figure that out. <laughs> the label is Analecta. A label I'm not sure that we've ever talked about. Hmm, doesn't ring we, a bell. We, we may have done it once. I'm not really sure, but I I don't think we have really. Okay, so the first thing, and this is a Baroque guitar, so we're dealing with Baroque era music. I went for this because I like the Baroque guitar a lot. It's got a nice gentle sound. And uh, Monsieur Vidal, never heard of him before, so I thought, hey, here's a good opportunity to uh, learn something new and then to present yeah. it to listeners. So who is Monsieur Vidal? His year of birth is unknown. He died in 1803. And he's only known as Monsieur Vidal at the moment. You know, I guess more research has to be done into him. Mm. Yet, he was known as one of the most famous and skillful guitar masters in Europe during his lifetime. Then why doesn't anybody know his first name? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's got to be somewhere. All right. His works are original and highly technical. Uh, he lived in France and was of Spanish origin. I don't know how they figured that out, but I mm. don't know his name. Anyway, he's the author of the first guitar concerto in the history of the instrument. But wow. the, the notes don't say whether the one we're going to hear on this album is that guitar concerto. I don't know if this is okay. the only one he ever wrote. It doesn't say. And he's the only guitarist who has ever performed at the prestigious 
Concert Spirituel de Tuileries. And we mentioned that before in a 2021 episode um, in one of our French uh, music episodes, which we gave kind of uh, sly names like French Me Baby. Those, if you oh, want right. to hear me talk about that, <laughs> it's on one of those. Probably on the first one. We haven't done a French episode in a while, have we? Not uh, in a while, no. There haven't been loads of French releases out that I could put them all together like that. The guitar Valois is playing on this album is a Baroque guitar with five courses in unison. Now, I'm not really sure what that means. Five courses means basically five strings, but those strings could be doubled. So you could have a five-course instrument with ten strings. That's possible. Okay. I think that's what that means. In this case, though, he says five courses in unison. I don't know what that means. It could mean that they're doubled strings and they both have to tune to the same note, but they would be anyway. I don't really understand that. Like a 12-string guitar or something. Yeah, I think that's what it would be like. Okay, anyway, we're going to have to hear... This is what's nice about sampling the music. We're going to have to hear the sound of this instrument. It's a little unusual. It's uh, much um, less resonant than a, and a lot quieter mm-hmm. than a modern guitar. And it, it has slightly more sustain than a lute, but it actually sounds really quiet, so I can't really tell. Let's hear the first um, track is Concerto... Pula guitar, and this might be, I can't say that it is definitively, the first uh, guitar concerto ever written for the uh, instrument. Wow. Here it is. Jacques André Houle and Olivier B. Brault are playing violins on this track. So the first movement, it's only two movements. Uh, the first movement is kind of like a sonata type thing, you know, yeah. with the rondo at the end, like those early Mozart violin sonatas. Anyway. The first movement is an allegretto, and we hear strings and the basso continuo, or that could be the guitar bass string. Okay, I'm going to talk about the first issue I have with this recording. The the guitar is recorded up close in a lot of the tracks, not all of them. Some of them actually, it sounds kind of natural. But when it's really close, as in this concerto, there's a bass string that's much louder on the recording than the other instruments. And I couldn't really tell if it was like resonating with something in my room because the room was kind of like, there were rattling sounds in my room because, <laughs> you know, the bass was just making the, the kind of windows rattle or something because they're kind of loose in their fittings and stuff. It was kind of horrible. Not the recording, just my uh, listening situation. I should have put the headphones on, I guess. But anyway, the bass was very resonant here. The basso continuo is very deep and resonant and it sounds very close. And to me, it rather took over the sound. The overall sound of the instrument is intimate. Actually, the whole thing is intimate. And we hear a guitar in there accompanying the violin melodies at the beginning. At a minute and 35 seconds, the guitar comes in, and it's an intimate-sounding instrument with a gentle tone. This is where it starts uh, soloing. So, again, we need to hear this. what this actually sounds like. Actually, that sounds really pretty in the headphones. Maybe I, <laughs> I just had the bass turned up too loud on my stereo. It's pretty kind of rustic, too. Yeah, there's a kind of a rustic uh, tone to it. I said the bass is highly resonant, but we weren't hearing that there, so I don't know. Maybe it was my stereo. It is recorded very close. This is a very quiet-sounding instrument. 
tempo is on the slow side, but I think that serves the instrument's sound. Because I think like the viola da gamba, it just kind of takes a little time to register. Or something with the decay takes a little bit of uh, time before you can get to the next note clearly. There are a lot of slower tempos on this record. The movement has a slowish, sprightly feel to it, as you just heard. The recording is extremely dry, especially on the violins. There's like no kind of room uh, <laughs> sound on them at all. And this is always good for detail, but it, you do kind of want something a little more resonant, I think. Actually, it sounded good there, but I thought when I was listening to it that the recording kind of left something to be desired. But Valois' playing on this is pretty impressive, I have to say. Um, he's playing that five-course guitar, which I believe means five double strings, although we're not really clear on that. Maybe he'll write to us and tell us. He's got some knotty passages to play and dispatches them impressively, especially in the cadenza. The movement comes across as pretty rather than exciting. It's kind of going for elegance. And at the 8 minute and 5 second mark, there's a brief cadenza. Okay, I'm going to sample later one of the uh, solo guitar pieces, so I'm going to skip the cadenza here as a sample. We go to the second movement, Rondo Allegro. And we know what a rondo is because we listen to this podcast all the time, and I seem to talk about them every other <laughs> week. It's a repeating theme. The movement goes away from it and then comes back to it, so you hear it several times. Sort of like a chorus in a pop song. The guitar gets most of the melodic material in the rondo theme. Then the strings come in dancing, extremely dry and rough sounding, as opposed to sweet, so rustic, like Russ said. It's nice to hear so much of the guitar in this movement. The instrument actually sounds tough to play. Valois doesn't get very fast speed out of it when he's picking, and when he does play at fast speed, he's generally doing like kind of hammer-on pull-offs here. Although he does get some trilling hmm. sounds that are pretty impressive. Uh, the highlights of this movement are all when the guitar is playing alone, as at the two-minute mark. Uh, the string playing sounds very much like accompaniment and doesn't draw much interest. The ensemble playing is very prosaic. Let's hear this at that uh, two-minute mark, so we can hear the solo guitar playing really this gorgeous melody. from that. It's all really appealing. <laughs> you know, it's just really catchy. The highlights of this movement, when they, as I said, when the guitar is playing alone, the string playing sounds very much like accompaniment. It doesn't really draw much interest, and the ensemble playing, eh, it's okay. It acts as accompaniment. It, it doesn't really bring a lot of life to the piece, but it just kind of serves to pin the harmony down, which is fine. We're really here to hear the guitar, after all. Okay, track three is a prelude général taken from his uh, Nouveau Princep de Guitare. Uh, Valois is better served here when he's playing solo, although I thought those two samples I, sounded pretty good in my headphones. I have to hear this in headphones, I think. We can get the detailed sounds of his instrument, and there's some fast playing here. The bass is tamed here as well, though it still registers more resonantly than the rest of the strings. Okay, the um, fourth track is Variation sur le Folie d'Espagne, Folie d'Espagne, which is a pretty famous um, piece.
piece, and a lot of composers wrote um, uh, variations on it. It's a familiar theme performed by a lot of Baroque ensembles, and here it's played by the solo guitar. The appeal comes with the sound that the instrument makes. It's thinner sounding than a modern guitar, like the lute, but with a lot more, well, not really a lot more, sustain, but more sustain. The bass string registers um, strongly on the recording again, although we're going to have a sample, maybe it doesn't, I'm going to hear this. And I was wondering if I heard distortion in this, but um, maybe not. The guitar is recorded very close though. Probably not a bad thing, but I want to sample the um, tremolo material at uh, the 6 minute and 28 second mark because this is, you don't really hear this kind of thing on a regular guitar, and it sounds like really tricky to play. But let's uh, give this a listen. Those caught my ear right away. Yeah. First, for that interesting rhythmic bouncy tremolo. I mean, we hear a tremolo in classical guitar, but it's much more even usually. Yeah. It's a really interesting rhythm. And then the final variation there has that kind of, I don't know if it's like a little hammer-on mm -hmm. or, or multiple ones at the same time. And I've never heard anything like that in most yeah. classical guitars. So that caught my ear. Uh, immediately as something kind of unique. Yeah, it's really a different kind of technique than we normally use on, that, especially on a, uh, a modern classical guitar. Um, and uh, he goes in, he doesn't really give much detail in the booklet notes about this, which you can get from an Electa online, but you had to sign up for their site, which was cool. I did that. There are other labels aren't giving me the, the booklet notes. So I don't know what I'm listening to half <laughs> yeah. the time. Anyway. All right, so and I thought that was a, actually pretty good sounding. When I was listening on my stereo, I was having you know trouble with the sound. Maybe I was just playing the recording too loud, but the recording sounds really good on the uh, headphones here. So maybe, maybe just ignore me when I talk about <laughs> sound quality. Okay, I'm taking it back. Tracks five through six. Here we have the Sonata pour la guitare avec accompagnement de violon. And that's uh, Jacques-André Houle is the violinist. These works come across really, really well. This is a two-movement work. Um, the first one is allegro, or a little faster. And here the guitar has a lot of tricky figuration. Uh, there's a violin that's really just underlining the melodic material the guitar is playing. There's a rather pretty theme just after the first minute. Tempo is lively enough throughout, and downbeats are strongly enough marked in the performance. The guitar has a lot of circling arpeggio work filling out his sound, and there's a bouncy ending. Yeah, the um, figuration that's accompanying the guitarist's melody in the guitar is uh, really impressive in this. And I really like the balance between these two instruments on these pieces, on these, you know, these different uh, sonatas too. Let me just get to the presto, the second movement. This is track six. The guitar gets a good dancing rhythm from the theme, which the violin outlines. I like the falling pattern he plays throughout the first minute. It's a brief movement, but it's very appealing. 
and the recording serves this work well. I gotta say, when he plays with this violinist, they really do highlight the rhythm, which is something I always like to hear in Baroque music, so we're getting that more here than elsewhere, although he did it as well in Folie d'Espagne. Anyway, tracks 7 through 9, Trois Contre Danse. These are like ballroom dance sort of rhythms or melodies. Taken from Recul der Dopera Comique. So I guess the Menuet et Contre Danse avec la Variation Arrangée pour la Guitare, Opus 16. Sorry, that's Opus 18. I got the Opus number wrong. Contre Danse number 10. This is track 7. So we're not going to hear all of them, obviously. Uh, La Dufour, nicknamed La Dufour. So solo guitar and the basses tamed probably the best sounding balance on the recording so far. These actually came across to me as the the best sounding works on the recording Mm. from an engineering standpoint. Because I think the guitar is a little further away from the mic here. Track 8, Contradance number 11. A wonderful Baroque dance rhythm, well presented by Valois. We get a good idea of his sound in these pieces, so I'd like to sample this particular one too. This is going to be track 8. We're getting a little more like room sound on that too. Yeah. He's 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 moved back from the uh, the mic here. I really prefer this sound to the sound the more the closer sound that we're getting mm-hmm. in tracks three and four. You could still get all the detail if it's playing as well. Oh, by the way, I checked this recording was made on two different dates, and um, <laughs> I bet you can tell which were made on one date and which the other. Although I've tried to do this before with the uh, Radnitsky recordings, and I'm always wrong. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know what the deal Maybe with that not. is. Maybe not. Maybe I don't know. But I'm guessing the, the mic was close one day and further away the next day or something like that. Anyway, track 9, Contradance number 12. This has some fast figuration from the guitarist, underlying the rising melodic line in the first half of the theme. Again, the last loud chord comes across well-balanced on the recordings. He's away from the mic on this one. That really serves him for that big chord at the end. Tracks 10 through 11, we have a duo for guitar and violin. Again, Jacques-André Houle on the violin. Here the violin has a bit more of a role to play, though the guitar gets a lot of the lead as well. Performing and recording balance are good, and the violin may be placed a bit behind since this guitar is a very quiet instrument. Hul's playing is very discreet. He gives the guitar a lot of space. The violin sound is very dry. A very little room sound is caught here. It's a pleasant movement, well presented. Track 11, this is movement 2 of this work, Allegro. Valois and Hul play well together here. This movement has some rhythmic vitality to it that comes across in the playing. Its skipping forward moving melody is given an energetic push by the performers. Track 12, Variations sur Pierrot dit à Madeleine. Now, I want to tell you, this is taken from a collection called... Okay, let me take a deep breath for this... <gasps> Recul der Doppercomique Menuet et Contredance avec des variations arrangées pour la guitare. Opus 18. Actually, I said that one already <laughs> earlier. Hey, what did you get at the store today? Oh, I got Recul der Doppercomique, etc. <laughs> anyway, a lot of things have names like that from the 18th century. Like the variations on Folie d'Espagne, this is recorded very closely. I would have preferred the sound captured in the Contredances here. 
Uh, the bass is gently played, so it's not overpowering. Uh, this is a pretty brief set of variations, using the by now familiar technique of providing a quick arpeggiated bed under the melodic material in the last variation, a technique that Monsieur Vidal seems to favor, and that Valois, Pascal Valois, executes very well with the arpeggiated bed under the melodic material. And then the piece simply and unexpectedly ends. Tracks 13 to 14, we get the duo for guitar and violin. This is the last one of these. Jacques-André Houle on the violin. Uh, the first uh, movement, Allegretto, a simple melody, features in this movement, played by the violin and followed up by a statement and repeat by the violin with the guitar doing the repeating. This is a set of variations on the opening theme with some inventive arranging between the two instruments. The guitar gets all the virtuosic playing, with the violin usually melodizing. And the second movement is a rondo. It has an appealing theme, played with a thin tone of the guitar and ornamented by the violin. It's nicely laid out. And again, these two partners sound great together. They complement each other well. It's an appealing movement. The final track on the album, a Sonata pour guitare avec la basse. Taken from, oh, here's another one of these names. Recul d'air avec accompagnement de guitare et clavecin extrême de petits morceaux et air varié et d'une sonate avec accompagnement de basse. Opus 19. <laughs> I would say that better if I was studying French still, but apologies to my French listeners. Anyway, there's a bass on this. I'm wondering who it is. There's no bass listed in the credits, so I'm wondering if this is the cellist Amanda Kismat playing the bass part on the cello. I'm not really sure. It does sound like it could be a, like a viola da gamba or a cello. Um, the track list uh, doesn't specify. Uh, the booklet notes don't either. Now, for me on my stereo, the bass came across way too resonantly here, and I really kind of should have <laughs> heard this in headphones as well. I would have preferred the bass to be further back on the recording, though. Uh, the guitar is recorded very close up. Uh, the piece itself is appealing, and the guitar playing is fluid. It's never covered up. The heavy resonance of the bass gets distracting. The guitar is playing figuration throughout the five-minute piece, sometimes while carrying the melody. Very impressive playing by Valois. And I want to give the bass player credit, or her due, if, assuming it's Amanda Kismat. Uh, she plays well and compliments Valois playing impressively. Okay, now I'm complaining a lot about the bass sounds, but I'm wondering if somehow this uh, recording just didn't hit some resonance in my room and just make the bass really stand out more than other instruments. It seems to be okay in my headphones when I did those samples just now, so I'm going to back off of that and let the listeners um, decide. So here we get introduced to music by a composer who was completely unknown to me, and Valois, pa Pascal Valois, the um, guitarist, uh, makes a good case for it. He's really the bright spot on the recording, as he should be, as his violinist Jacques-André Houle when he appears. He's the two of them together are excellent. Uh, the five-course instrument he plays is so quiet that one wonders how it could have been heard in concerts back in the era when these works were written. Because if you're going to play a, a guitar concerto with this instrument, I think you'd have to be in the audience in order for them to hear it. I don't know. Okay, now there's varying sound quality on this recording. It sounds like the mic was very close to the guitar on, on one set of re recordings, and then it was moved back for others, mostly on the uh, solo works. I was interested enough in the music and the sound of the Baroque guitar being used to allow it not to bother me. And it's worth making the effort to do that because Pascal Valois' playing and the sound of his instrument are both pretty wonderful. Guitar players and anyone interested in the guitar or its history would be interested in hearing this recording regardless of the sound quality. And in fact, if you're a guitar player, I think you really need to hear this. It's um, some pretty impressive um, 
techniques written into these pieces and executed by Pascal Valois here. I enjoyed it. It's mostly light and rhythmic. I like the rustic quality of the first few pieces on here, and I like the interplay with the violin. I thought the sound of the violin sort of mitigates that lack of sustain that mm. the smaller bodied guitar has, especially in the closer recorded numbers. So you get a little bit more of carryover and you get the appeal of both instruments. As you highlighted the track four with those interesting tremolo and variations with techniques we don't hear a lot in guitar works later than that, I keyed into them having played some of these type of things on classical guitar myself. And it's mostly rhythmic and lively works from a composer we don't know a lot about. And I thought the performances, the guitar technique was excellent and yeah, kind of enjoyable. Something I hadn't heard before. Recommended for all guitarists and lovers of music from this time period. Yeah, it's um, it's it's still an exciting time for um, Baroque music. A lot of research is going into this and we're getting more and more information all the time. You know, every 10 years, there seems to be so much more that we know and new composers emerge from the past and uh, younger musicians take them up. It's really fantastic. You know, a lot of classical musicians are always looking for something new to play to kind of make their own, you know. It's great that musicians want to take this music that hasn't been performed before and, you know, actually perform and get it recorded. That's nice. Yeah, speaking of which, our next recording is Echoes of Bohemia, Czech music for wind. So from the Czech Republic or what would have been Bohemia, I guess, back in the day when a lot of these uh, works were written. Or it could have been Czechoslovakia after the war, too. But some of them were Bohemia. Or part of the uh, Habsburg Empire at, at some point. Anyway, the uh, artist here is the Orsino Ensemble. And we've actually heard them before on uh, May 21st, 2021, in a recording called Belle Epoque, wow. which had music from uh, the French uh, Belle Epoque. The end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. A really magical time in French music. This is only their second album, so we've done both of their albums. I guess we like them. Um, another thing, <laughs> yeah, we do, I guess. And another reason I like them is because they're a wind ensemble and we just don't hear enough of those on this right. podcast or really uh, recorded in general. So I really like to highlight music like this where we get to hear sort of a different sound. Anyway, the Orsino Ensemble consists of Adam Walker on the flute. He's done a lot of solo recordings, yeah. too. Uh, Nicholas Daniel on oboe, Matthew Hunt on clarinet, Amy Harmon on bassoon, and Alec Frank Jemil on the French horn. You want to think uh, last week we heard um, Nielsen's um, concertos, and he was going to write a, um, a concerto for each member of the that Copenhagen Wind uh, right. Quintet. So we have for flute and clarinet. The other three, of course, would have been for oboe, bassoon, and French horn, and it's our loss that Nielsen died before he could write yeah. those. Anyway, I, I think about things like that. Um, this also happened with um, Debussy, who was writing six chamber works, and he only completed three of them at the end of his life. And they're all so fantastic. That I'm just It just kills me that I can't hear the other three, because he died before he wrote them. Anyway, we have two extra players on this um, recording, Linus Owen on the bassoon, and James Bayou on piano on the last piece. This is on the Chandos label, and it's an SACD. And an SACD I may have to acquire because I really enjoyed this recording. I heard this on streaming. There are a lot of compositions for winds by Czech composers. I don't know why. They seem to like this uh, form mm. a lot. We're going to really jump through uh, history a bit here, too. The first work is by Pavel Haas, 
This is a wind quintet for flute, oboe, clarinet, French horn, bassoon, the typical wind quintet, written in 1929. Haas was Janacek's pupil and considered his best one. The uh, first movement of this is a four-movement work. It starts preludio. And right away, there's an interesting sound. There's a nasal oboe with flute and clarinet puffing single staccato chords in accompaniment in the background. And there's a lovely resolve via a trill to this section right at the one-minute mark. Okay, I'm not going to play up to there, but uh, let's just hear the beginning of this piece. So a pretty uh, gripping sound right away, a little unusual. You can tell it's written in the 20th century by the harmony as well. The French horn blares out a melody, and during the comfortable melodies, there are always interesting, highly rhythmic staccato accompaniment figures, like you heard there. These little like sort of puffs Excellent, of wind. Yeah. Sort of. I really like that sound a lot. It goes through the whole movement. Yeah, it's really great. It's a pretty short movement at 3 minutes and 15 seconds. The second movement is called preghiera, or prayer. This has an earnest suitably prayerful flute playing a plaintive melody in its low end. Here lines are slower moving and the slow pulse is set by longer breathed figures or set off by longer breathed figures. Uh, the melodic material gets passed around so that we can hear it in all of the wind quintet timbres and again I like the powerful way the French horn is used in this movement. There's some pretty intriguing writing for full chords in the fourth minute. Haas is really interesting because you have that French horn which is the only brass instrument. I guess it's considered a wind instrument, but it's it has a real power to it. And it's got like kind of a big tone, and he really uses it. Really stands out every time it plays mm -hmm. in this uh, piece. He really makes sure that it takes center stage when it uh, is heard. The third movement, ballo eccentrico, uh, start which means eccentric dance, starts with a staccato ostinato bassoon bass line. I love bassoon bass lines. <laughs> I really want to hear more of those. Maybe we should put them in rock music, too. I think that would be cool. <laughs> Electric bassoon. <laughs> Which the clarinet echoes in playing its melody. The flute comes in with the same texture, and eventually the entire quintet is playing in this style. There's one particular up-and-down swooping melody that made a big impression on me, and you can hear it in the first minute played by the French horn. And there are some drooping whying sounds at about 1 minute and 56 seconds. The music picks up quickly after that and leads to the end. I could sample that too but I, uh, there are four pieces on this and I want to hear some of those too so I'm going to let you listener seek that out that's the that's track three the fourth movement epilogue starts with clarinet led theme with a brief repeating chord pattern backing it up the rhythm remains but is suddenly taken over by various instruments as others take the solo line it's clever writing for the ensemble and a piece worth hearing the Orsino ensemble make the most of the constantly changing timbral patterns it's a pretty light and entertaining work, and a little there's, there's a little kind of quirkiness to it that I really enjoyed, too. Okay, so after that, you get to reset with Antoine Reicha, who's really famous for his wind quintets. He lived at the time of Beethoven. Wind Quintet, Opus 88, Number 2, in E-flat major, written in 1817, so 100-plus years before the Pavel Haas. This is quite a big leap back in time from that. 
It's the biggest work on the album, composes a full-on four-movement sonata, and doesn't have any heaviness to it. So though he lives in Beethoven's time, he's not really writing in, with this kind of Beethovenian heaviness. It's got a lot of charming moments. Charm is a good word to describe Reicha's music, which the Orsino pull out through their sensitive shaping of melodic lines and harmonic balance. The first movement, Lento, moving on to Allegro Moderato, <laughs> the, the difference between 1817 and 1929 are very apparent <laughs> right away at the beginning of this uh, work. It starts with a smooth, drawn-out set of chords, recalling Mozart's magic flute overture in its voicing. There's a charming bassoon line just before the 32nd mark, and the line develops like a classical work by Mozart or Beethoven, in that it builds up to something rather than just starting. We feel like we're headed somewhere in this work, and that's not necessarily the case in the Pavel Haas, which is really more in the moment. What, what you're hearing now is kind of the most important thing, not really where it's going so much. There are amiable harmonies, and we get to hear the Orsino Ensemble here in their most beautiful tones, playing fully and richly for this piece, whereas they were more in a mode of timbral expression in the Haas piece. By 2 minutes and 30 seconds, we're hearing a more chirpy, energetic, carefree melody. At 3 minutes and 41 seconds, after the cadence, we get some charming melodizing, squarely in the classical tradition, and deeply satisfying. This is really the most beautiful that the ensemble is going to sound on this recording, and I feel like I have to uh, let you hear this. So let's hear a bit of that. pretty that, mm. that little leaping nice. bass of dun 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 it's really cute now if Beethoven writing that it would have been more like bum ba you know <laughs> but he's kind of lightened it up quite a bit here yeah this has a very classical feel light and yeah very enjoyable yeah okay so second movement menuet though very traditional it's a quick menuet which is a dance with a lovely upward scale move taken absolutely legato it comes across with a lot of charm is played here by the ensemble with a bouncing lilt to it. The B section is, of course, lighter and more spacious, with individual instruments trading to play the ends of lines. I really like that technique. The A section repeats with more gentleness this time, it seems to me. There's a C section with puffing staccato accompaniment under the fluttering melody above. Charm is the name of the game in this movement. The third movement, Poco Andante Grazioso, is the slow movement, and it starts like a slow Mozart aria in the oboe with deep bassoon pinning down the bass. Again, I love those bassoon bass lines. The melody has an appealing lilt and sticks in the memory pretty quickly. A more flute-led fluttery section comes in at around 1 minute and 45 seconds after a cadence. After this, we hear the opening theme again. I like the way the Orsino keep this spacious melody moving. The French horn comes in to introduce a new melody at around the 4 minute and 50 second mark, which will be taken up as a fugato. 
Uh, we eventually get back to the opening melody in the French horn. I like the way it's charmingly accompanied by staccato flute at about the eight minute mark, and there's a gentle cadence at the end. By the way, when you have wind instruments, which all play legato, when you hear like a fugato, which is kind of like a fugue that doesn't continue as a fugue, you have all these polyphonic voices, each playing their own melody. It just sounds so great when you hear it on instruments like these with all these distinct colors and uh, the ability to play a true legato. The fourth um, movement, which is track eight, is the finale. It's a rondo, and it has a light dance feel, a light in keeping with the character of the rest of the piece. The flute fleetly and lightly leads it. The Orsino have a light touch here, and in the majority of this work, really. There's not much heaviness or darkness in it, and Reicha wants to charm and entertain. I love the liveliness that the Orsino give the rhythm in this movement. In a departure from the theme at a minute and 20 seconds, the bassoon takes the lead. There are a lot of charming effects in the harmony and in the playing of the more rapid lines. The rondo theme is so appealing that it always brings a smile when it comes back. The very clean execution of trills, particularly on the flute but really on all instruments, is drawing my ear in this movement. And this piece is pure classical era entertainment. But you just sample all day, really. <laughs> Couldn't hear on this album. There's a lot of good stuff. Tracks 9 through 12, Leos Janacek, a favorite of the uh, Adult Music Podcast, although yeah. we haven't talked about him much, but you and I like his music a lot, yeah, especially the Sinfonietta with all that brass oh, yeah. at the beginning. This is uh, called Mladi, uh, which means youth, and um, JW7, Roman numeral 7 slash 10 for those who are counting, keeping score. I, I feel like people who know the opus numbers like the people at baseball games who like keep score of the game <laughs> with that yeah. book, you know? So this was written in 1924. This is for uh, flute and or piccolo, I guess the uh, musician trades between them. Oboe, clarinet in B-flat, French horn, bassoon, and bass clarinet, one of our favorite mm. instruments. Peter Sparks is on the bass clarinet here. Janacek composed this optimistic piece to celebrate his 70th birthday. Well, I'm glad it was optimistic. Yeah, yeah nice. This is a sextet. I'm still like uh, quite a ways away from that. That's good. I'm happy <laughs> that he's still happy at 70 because this this is why we listen to classical music people because when you're 58 like me you want to know that the coming years are still going to be great right that your life right. isn't over which is kind of what rock music tells you so. <laughs> anyway let's go through this track nine allegro this has a sort of hypnotic quality in its repeating rhythm the melody is catchy and is appealingly handed around I like the repeating ostinato bassoon line as the rest of the ensemble play the theme. And this happens at around the one minute mark if you'd like to sample that. Track nine. There's a Stravinsky sound to the arrangement with its bubbling patterns and constant moving parts. A more still middle section gives way to playful wildness at the end. The ending has a momentary noble French horn line, but that's dispelled by the bubbly playful rush to the last chord. The second movement is Andante Sostenuto. Low instruments are heard here, and it's the bass clarinet in its low end. The bass clarinet gets some long droning notes. In the first minute, as in the higher instruments, pursue their separate melodic patterns. At the three-minute mark, we get a Stravinskyan bubbling pattern, and afterwards, some compelling rhythmic beds for the oboe to play over. You know, I'm calling these Stravinskyan, but Janoshek probably did these first. Mm. But we, we associate the sound so much with Stravinsky now that it's easy to understand if I use that word. The bass clarinet leads the upper instruments into some appealing harmony in the fourth minute. Some nice combinations of sounds here leading to the piece's end. 
the, the movements end. I'm sorry, the piece still has two moment, movements to go. The third movement is Vivace, and this has a mechanical rhythm at the beginning, recalling Stravinsky again. A flute chirps out the opening, and this suddenly stops at around the 52nd mark, but uh, let's listen to this. Again, I want to keep going there, too. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> okay, so that flute all suddenly stops at around the 50-second mark, and longer melodic figures are played out over wavering rhythm in the low end. At a minute and 40 seconds, the opening rhythm comes back momentarily. Uh, then we're back to the slower melody, which the French horn majestically leads midway into the second minute. The mechanical theme returns, with the bass clarinet sticking with a deep, appealing 1-5 bass line. Dun, 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 that kind of thing. The bass notes drop out for the last chord. Okay, now, the fourth movement, too, I have to sample the opening as well, because it has a compelling rhythm for the opening in the low end, and I think that's the bassoon and bass clarinet together. It's a really interesting combination of instruments for the melodic figure, which is reached just before the first minute. I'm just going to play the opening. We're not going to hear the melody, but uh, let's hear this. Yeah, we want to keep listening to that too. I, I love that. Whatever that instrument, I think that might have been the bass clarinet. The dugga 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 I, I think it's the it, horn, you know. actually. You think that's the horn? I do. That's amazing. The French horn. Because yeah. yeah, that's a hard instrument to play. Dugging. Yeah, in the lower register. See, I wouldn't have even. That wouldn't have even occurred to me. Like that. Yeah, that sounds really hard to do, man. Boy, because I've heard the French horn is really hard to keep in tune. All right, so I really love that rhythm. Interesting combinations of instruments for the melodic figure. Uh, the faster rhythm comes back with an almost galloping feel to it, and a bass clarinet trill accompanies melodic figures above in the second minute. Uh, this movement features a lot of quick changes and gets more exciting as it nears its end, or excitable, uh, ending with a high-speed run, a sudden slowing, then a burst of energy to the final chord. And then finally, Bohuslav Martinu, sextet. Written in 1929. So we got three 20th century works in one. <laughs> the odd man yeah. out is Reicher. Anyway, this is also a 20th century work. And uh, there's no French horn in this work. It's for flute, oboe, clarinet, and two bassoons and piano. Two bassoons. <laughs> two bassoons, yeah. When one isn't enough. The second bassoon is played by Linos Owen and the piano by James Bayot. Martinus started studying music in Prague, but eventually went to Paris in the 1920s. Um, he studied with Roussel there, and was influenced by Stravinsky's music and by Paris's jazz scene. Anyway, in the prelude, Martinu comes in with a modernist harmony right away. It's pretty thick, and we hear a piano play a brief arpeggio, a surprise on this album where there's only been winds so far. So you hear that piano sound, and you're like, whoa, it just kind of hmm. you know, catches your attention. 
The wind melody at the 52nd mark is very pretty and harmonically interesting as well. Let's sample that, hearing the uh, piano's intro to it as well. Some pretty harmonies in there, too. And I even heard mm. a, a cuckoo in one of the higher wind instruments. The piano gets a brief solo section at a minute and 40 seconds, introducing new material, which the wind instruments pick up. Second movement, adagio. Um, the clarinet gets the intro on this movement with gentle piano arpeggios. Then the bassoon comes in with some plaintive playing, and the rest of the ensemble follows. After the piano's chords at the beginning of the first minute, the winds come in, and I liked the Orsino's sensitivity here, and really throughout the album. The piano playing is fine, but the piano sound isn't very full. It sounds like it's recorded at a bit of a distance. It doesn't have the same level of presence as the wind instruments, though it has the same volume, gentle ending. The third movement is a scherzo. This is divertimento one. A divertimento means like a diversion or something entertaining, and scherzo means a joke. It doesn't mean like a real joke, but it generally has some kind of humor in it. And this particular piece leaps around a lot with the piano's quick rhythm driving the flute. The piano has a brief solo. There's some comedy in this movement, and, you know, in keeping with the uh, scherzo title, listen to the flute and piano's interaction just before the first minute. More antics follow. Now there's a fourth movement titled Blues Divertimento 2. Now, this would be, of course, a blues as interpreted in France in the 1920s. Back then, in France, jazz and blues would have been the popular music that was influenced by America. It wasn't actual blues and jazz, really. What it really means is a certain feel and not an actual blues chord pattern, because we're not hearing anything like that here. And it's not a heavy kind of blues feel, either. For Europeans at the time, blues was a kind of popular music. Ravel did this sort of thing, too. It's mostly gestures we associate with the blues, like after the minute and 20 second mark with the popular song type of melodies and the staccato accents in the rhythm. It's an appealing movement, nevertheless. Just don't take it too uh, literally. Yeah, I think Gershwin-y and a little ragtime piano influence right. in the flavor. Yeah, because jazz was really happening in America and it was kind of an export to Europe and they were kind of, they had a certain take on it at the time. It wasn't what America had at the time, so... Now that we have access to all these old recordings from the U.S., we just imagine the whole world was like that, and it really wasn't. Anyway, there's a fifth movement. This is the finale. A theme with a lot of repeated notes starts this off. There are some quick, short phrases played by the entire ensemble in harmony. It's a busy movement and full of fun and clever moves. There's even a modal melody at 1 minute and 45 seconds. I love those. And the winds give a grand statement of the theme, playing quickly to lead to the final chord. So the music on this album is, it's pretty light. It can get pretty jokey in some of the um, more modern works. And it's an entertaining album of wind music that will definitely bring a smile and lightens one's mood. The four pieces on this album all have their own individual characters, and three of them were written in the 1920s, which just goes to show what variety that decade enjoyed, because those pieces, although they have 20th century harmony, they all sound different from each other. 
This is the Orsino's second album, and we've heard the first one on this uh, podcast. This one also has very characterful ensemble playing. They'll often alter their individual tones subtly to bring across niceties of expression, as in the opening of the Pavel Haas quintet we heard and that we sampled. They blend together beautifully and have a sharp sense of rhythm, which for me is important. This is wind repertoire that we rarely hear outside of the Czech Republic, except perhaps the Reichkirk Quintet, uh, which is standard for wind players worldwide. It's an interesting, enjoyable, and mostly light listen, and winds up being rather uplifting. I think these pieces should be performed more often. I thought this was really appealing. It was nice to hear a full wind ensemble program. As you mentioned, all of the works have different characters and different influences that you can pick up on. I really enjoyed the different timbre combinations, bassoon, bass clarinet, and the horn mixed in. And we get a variety of instrumentation, even getting some piano on the last work. It's just kind of a feast of little wind sounds and different tones, nice harmonies, pleasant listen. So my that's my classical pick of the week anyway. Now I went for a Another sort of oddity, I wouldn't call it an oddity, it's just an unknown composer from the 20th century named Gunnar de Frumerie. Lived from 1908 to 1987, and we're hearing here his um, clarinet concerto and concertino for piano and string orchestra, and two other works, Musica per Nove and Suite im Alten Stil, performed by Thorsten Johans on clarinet, Oliver Trindl on the piano solo, Muchner Rundfunk Orchestra, conducted by Ivan Repusic. And this is on the CPO label, a German label. So who is Gunnar de Frumerie? So I've got like the, um, the sandwich going here again, because we didn't know the first composer, and we've probably never heard of this guy either, unless you grew up in Sweden, maybe. Um, Frumerie grew up in a musical family in Sweden, and he studied at the Stockholm Conservatory then in Vienna with Emil von Sauer, and finally at the Conservatoire de Paris with Alfred Cortot. Now, with names like Sauer and Cortot, you know he's going to be this big-time pianist, and he was. His instrument was the piano, and via his two teachers, his music is a mix of Brahmsian complexity, that's the Sauer influence, and Impressionistic elegance, that would be the Cortot influence. And two-thirds of his compositions are for the piano. Anyway, the first one isn't. <laughs> it's um, a two-movement clarinet concerto composed in 1958. This is his Opus 51. Thorsten Johann is the clarinet soloist. This has song-like and dance-like thematic figurations. Anyway, it starts on Dante with strings and a thumping pizzicato bass. Uh, the clarinet comes in right away and plays a memorable melody. And the whole thing starts out rather squarely until the clarinet starts adding to the initial theme. The recording is good and transparent. The strings come across with an appealing lightness, and the clarinet is right up front where you can savor Thorsten Johann's beautiful tone. Let's hear the opening to this clarinet concerto. start moving into new tonal areas there. All right, so that bass, 
I, I said it was thumping, but it's really very gentle. It's a gentle thumping. Anyway, the music builds up in the second minute, and once it hits its climax, uh, I think it could have been done with more drama from the orchestra, but the whole thing remains pretty, with the clarinet as the obvious star of the work. He gets some virtuosic longer lines from this point. At 4.22, the music converts to a more mournful, lugubrious theme, and there's a nice handoff to a new section at 4.38, and a more appealingly melodic section. I have to say, the clarinetist solos with beautiful tone throughout. It's striking enough for me to notice. A crisis point is reached again at around the 6 minute and 20 second mark in the music, and the clarinet is left alone to poetically cadenza his way out of it. I'm using cadenza as a verb there. <laughs> so that's my new invention. Mm. I'm enjoying Johann's rich lower tone in this cadenza, which figures heavily in the beginning. It's a pretty slow but highly expressive cadenza, with lamenting notes low on the instruments, punctuated by occasional two-note hoots in the higher end. By the ninth minute, we're in the higher end of the instrument. The cadenza's ending is punctuated by an aggressive entry by the orchestra, uh, which the clarinet responds to. The movement is brought to a quick close. And the second movement, marked Allegro Grazioso, has a rustic-sounding opening like that of a folk dance. The clarinet plays the rustic theme over dancing strings. A solo violin comments on the clarinet's theme. Strings take over the theme as the clarinet begins to comment. In fact, rustic is a good word to describe the entire movement. There are thickly layered strings sawing on single bass notes like a pedal point, and all sorts of European country dance rhythms and themes. They're actually, they're probably Swedish. At 2 minutes 20 seconds, there's a sudden transition to a darker theme in great contrast to the opening material. The clarinet gets a bit of a break here, then comes in with a more positive line at around 3 minutes and 30 seconds, before being dragged down to sadness by the 4-minute mark. But no worries, the orchestra starts picking up the dance rhythm in snatches again, and by 4.25, things are happily cautious, though the jumpiness of the theme has calmed down a bit. The movement and concerto ends with a plaintive, quiet statement from the solo clarinet. The second work on the album, Musica per Nove, Opus 75, was written in 1976. Musica per Nove pretty much means it's a no-net, and the instruments are piano, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, trombone, double bass, and then there's a string trio, cello, viola, and violin. The first movement is marked Andante Maestoso, and it starts with a loping ostinato line that changes chords. Strings play over this. Textures change as the winds take over, over a bed of piano accompaniment. There's a bit of complicated movement between the lines, a lot happening individually between them, until the piano briefly takes over at the minute and 20 second mark, with various of the other instruments coming in for some thematic playing. The piano introduces new material and tends to take over when it plays. There's a trudging heaviness to a lot of this movement, despite the occasional lighter interplay of instruments. It's played fleetly enough, with a good spring to the rhythm, more so than the clarinet concerto, which was very melodic, I have to say. The opening theme often peaks in at key moments to divide the separate sections of the work. Interplay between the soloists is impressive. All handoffs of themes and changes of texture are seamlessly executed. The movement ends tranquilly with a soft pizzicato on the last note. The second movement is marked Andante Tranquillo and has a hushed romantic whisper of a melody starting it off. As the strings come in, this remains the feel for this movement, romantically warm and melodic. There's a great key change by the piano at the 1 minute and 20 second mark as it introduces a new theme. Nice harmony writing for the winds from 150 to the second minute. This theme is handed off to the strings, 
A light trudge develops in the rhythm at the 2 minute and 40 second mark and continues through the harmonic and timbral changes. By the 5th minute, the music sounds positively funereal. The bassoon re repeats the opening theme at the end before handing off to the cello. I like the way Frumery keeps this in the low end of the ensemble. It's a clever use of register. The third movement is marked Allegro Misterioso, and this starts with an agitated staccato piano line deep in the bass. Uh, the ensemble builds this up via a crescendo. The movement sort of winds upwards in a buzzing way, but quickly retreats down to the lower frequencies again. Most of the movement involves the lower frequencies in the lead, and for that reason creates some interesting sounds. There's a sustained piano chord that's allowed to decay for a while before the piano comes back with a slow ostinato line that furthers the mysterioso quality of the movement, with other instruments following from the piano's chords. The movement actually ends in one of the harmonic extensions of these chords provided by the rest of the ensemble. Uh, the uh, fourth movement, track six, is a uh, theme and variations on Dantino con molto. The piano plays the theme solo. It's pretty straightforward, and we hear a warm string and oboe variation. There's a rippling 6-8 variation following in the low winds, guided by piano arpeggios. There are some appealingly warm chords in this section as we cross to a more string-led variation. The trombone gets a variation to himself with piano accompaniment. The theme always sounds very warm when outlined by the strings, Always a pleasant and calming surprise when you hear it. In the third minute, there's a variation for wind instruments in harmony. Then solo lines are heard trading off with piano accompaniment and all sorts of juxtapositions of timbral harmony are heard from there, all of them appealing and clever. The movement ends with a string chord in the mid-range. Next, we get the Suite im Alten Stil, Opus 5b. This was written in 1930, so long before uh, the first two works. Um, the first movement, Preludium Maestoso. Altenstiel means in the old style, I should say. So this starts out with a kind of majesticness to it, following the direction of the Maestoso. The recording is good and spacious. Tempo is rather slow, which accounts for the feel. Most of this is built on two eighth notes and a quarter note pattern. Ta-ta-tan, ta-ta-tan. The bigness of this is almost Sibelian, and I think that's a plagal cadence at the end. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but uh, it didn't sound like a dominant tonic to me. Anyway, the uh, second movement is a sarabande, uh, lightly flowing strings at the beginning, again with a slowish tempo for a sarabande, which is slow anyway. The strings get a full sound with lots of warmth. The piece just ends at the end of a phrase. The third movement, gavotte and musette, and gavotte again. Lively tempo and rather measured rhythmically. It kind of sounds like a tribal dance played like this. Brumery uses that 2 8 one fourth note pattern a lot in constructing this movement. There's a quieter middle section, again with a 2 8 and one quarter note pattern. The opening repeats. The fourth movement is a Sicilienne. Starts with our favorite uh, Siciliano rhythm and a winding rhythm on the English horn, I, which I think that's the English horn, unless it's an oboe. It's brief at a minute and 32 seconds. It doesn't change much, just wanders its way to the end. The fifth movement is a gigue. Again, the rhythm is rather measured, but this piece is well presented and we get a good idea of its appeal. It bubbles rather than dances in the wind sections, and that's an appealing sound to me. I think it would have preferred slightly swifter tempos on all of these movements. Finally, we get a uh, concertino for piano and string orchestra at the end, Opus 78, written in 1977. The pianist is Oliver Trindle. This is called a playful and humorous work in the notes I read about it. 
and was well received by the public when it was first performed. The first movement has a chugging rhythm, and the piano comes in right away with an appealing rhythmic theme. Again, though, tempo is slightly on the slow side, and the rhythm is too careful for my taste. Everything registers well, though, especially the piano. Just before the first minute, we go to a new section. After this section, there's a brief section of tonal indecision, then a climbing move at 2 minutes and 6 seconds to a well-defined key. The arpeggiated piano section after 2.30 is particularly lovely. Um, the piano wanders through different key areas up until around the 4 minute and 30 second mark where a well-defined key is landed on and established before the quiet end. Let's hear the piano section at the uh, 2 minute and 30 second mark. This music is building, and of course we can hear that it's heading somewhere. The second movement is Andante. It's lightly dramatic. It has a lightly dramatic string statement opening the movement. The piano answers the statement, and this wanders around a bit until the piano comes in at the minute and 35 second mark with a heavy melodic statement. Uh, and soon the orchestra starts answering his phrases with their dramatic marching rhythm. The movement ends on a natural string fade. The third movement is marked Allegro. Lightly pizzicato thumping bass introduces the piano, who's got some filigree lines at the top of the keyboard. There's a departure from the theme by the strings, and the piano comments on these. The phrase ends, and the piano comes back with a lighter line and even lighter arpeggiation in accompaniment. This section builds towards a key and reaches it at around the 2 minute and 40 second mark, and the piano brings this work to its positive conclusion. Okay, so the clarinet concerto is well played, though I could have used some more rhythmic lift from the orchestra. This is perfectly acceptable and enjoyable as it is, though, especially for the solo clarinet playing, which really shines in this work. I should mention that just because I'm American, I like to hear like more marked rhythms, and Europeans don't necessarily feel that way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> especially the further east you go, it seems. Anyway, the nonet sounds like it could have been written long before 1976, beautiful and romantic as it is. It's very Brahms-like in its approach, and no worse for that. The suite in Altenstiel was light and a pleasant, if unexciting, listen. I thought the piano work was a lot less interesting than the clarinet concerto, but it had very sensitive playing by Oliver Trindle, the pianist, which we heard in our sample. The music on the album is a pleasant discovery. It's very romantic, easy to listen to, there's nothing to disturb here, and I feel like I know just that little bit more about the unheard music of the 20th century after hearing this. I enjoyed all of these. They're really appealing. The clarinet yeah. concerto was kind of unpredictable. Yeah. I didn't know what's coming next, but the harmonic language is very familiar and comfortable, so you're easily going along for the ride through the various passages in that work. The orchestral works are very rhythmic, they have a lot of variety, and really nice use of timbres, particularly enjoyable woodwind parts and scoring in here that I found. And so I was happy to hear it. Another composer I didn't know 
Yeah. And now I want to hear more. Yeah, more please. I really it was enjoyable music. I liked it a lot. Yeah. And it's also music with a oh man, I'm missing the word now. It's got a goal at the end. Yeah. <laughs> like, it takes you a, someplace. A, a telos. A telos. You know, yes. as uh, Aristotle would say. Right. You know, things have an end. They're heading towards a certain goal. So this is music written with a telos. Telos. Yeah. That sounds Greek. It is Greek. <laughs> Wait, we're going back to Greece, Mike, in the jazz section. How great was that lead-in? Okay, that was great. can I can I pat myself yes. on the back? Please do yeah, that. Because I'm the best. <laughs> well, regular listeners will know that we've gone uh, Greek a few times on the podcast, especially in the area of jazz, but not only there. So it all started back in episode 61. I think he's active in the U.S. now, but we started with the vibraphonist Dimitris Angelicus with his Long Way Home, and that was in Mallet Maestro's episode. And then episode 64, that was Menage Trio. We <laughs> covered The Safe Place by Yakovos Semonidis' Jaco Organ Trio. And we went on to do an interview with him. We learned a lot yeah. about the history yeah. of jazz in Greece, and we got to know the fine keyboardist, organist on that recording, George Contraforis, who's sort of the godfather of Greek jazz. And so we said, okay, let's go into this a little bit more. And episode 69 was all Greek to me, yeah. where we focused on Greek classical music too. You actually put together three recordings of Greek classical music. Yeah. We had, uh, what was it, Axiotis? Oh. And we had uh, contemporary Greek music for solo piano. Right. And then we had that Flamenco Odyssey, Christos Sophocles' oh, right. uh, recording yeah. on Naxos, right? Mm -hmm. And in jazz, we did uh, George Contraforce Trio, Deep South, and Minios Guanars Trio, another Greek pianist that we enjoyed. And then the really big recording that became one of our favorites of the year, Spiral Trio's Broken right. Blue. Just listening to that the other day, in fact. Yeah, it's a great recording. And that was on Oderdeck, which I'm going to have more to talk about later on in the episode. And let's see, we did another Greek jazz musician later, episode 87, Fall Frets. That was uh, guitarist Apostolos Leventopoulos's After the Spirit, which also had George Contraforis on it. Tonight, we're going to have another Greek pianist, and this is his debut recording. And that's Paris Gagastathis with his quintet, the recording's called Introspective. It's on Jazz Breeze Records, and it came out September 1st. Gagastathis started his musical experience on classical guitar, but his interest turned toward piano, and he started taking private lessons with Panagiotis Grammatikopoulos. He continued his studies in classical singing, theory, and piano at Athens Conservatory, and later, the Glyphadia Conservatory, where he got degrees in harmony, counterpoint, and fugue. And in 2007, he started jazz piano studies at the Philippos Nakos Conservatory, where he completed the course and received a jazz piano degree. And now he teaches jazz piano at that conservatory. And this is his first recording, and surprisingly, it features all original compositions. And the notes say the basic inspiration for its creation is the sound of blue note from the 50s and 60s. So Gagastathis on piano and all compositions here. Dimitris Tsakas on alto sax, who we also heard on two tracks of Safe Place 
on a Jocko Organ Trio recording, and he really shines on this recording. I'm going to highlight some of that as we go on. Dimitris Papadopoulos on trumpet, Manos Lotus on bass, and Nikos Skomopoulos on drums. So let's jump right in with the title track, Introspective. The horns come right in with the unison syncopated melody line on this tune before splitting off into some chasing lines and triplets. It's a medium swing over walking bass. The melody is 32 measures, really the same 16 measures repeated, but I like how they change up the rhythmic feel from walking bass to a one note bounce on the second time. There's nice chord changes that twist into minor. Why don't we take a listen to how this tune gets started. there. Right. Hmm. Really nice sunny stuff there. Good feeling, yeah. Yeah. So Tuckus is up for the first solo with a great alto sax tone and shades of Cannonball Adderley I was seeing. He's lyrical and legato with bursts of double time figures on the way. A cute little bouncy more staccato ending. Papadopoulos follows on trumpet. He's got a clear tone and a good relaxed phrasing approach, also peppering in some double-time lines and triplet ideas. And Gagastathis is next with a rhythmically interesting and playful solo and a light touch. I'd say Monk is a big influence from this first listen and also from the title on the next tune. Once more around the melody and some final phrase repeats to end it. This recording has a kind of natural sound space you won't pick it up in headphones, but when you listen on speakers, you know, each ear hears both speakers and you get a little more sense of space because of the delay of sounds. And rather than having that sort of canned reverb sound that you get in a lot of recordings today, I could really feel the room that this was recorded in. And I liked that effect. Track two is Ode to Monk, a playful, swinging, monkish melody with echoing phrases in the horns and some monkish harmonies. It's 24 measures, two 12-measure halves, and the solo sections stick to 12-bar blues with Papadopoulos up first. He swings with nicely accented phrases, gets up higher, and has some fun bluesy licks and speedy double-time lines. Takas has some sassy phrasing and works licks in the lower register while making some harmonic tension. And Gagastathis gets some monkey playfulness in his solo. I like the sense of space and left-hand punctuations. He gets some percussive spots too. And then Lutus gets a rather unusual fuzzy-toned bass and vocalized solo. We talked about this. Is it a vocal solo or a bass solo? Uh, it's kind of unique and I haven't heard anything quite like it. So I thought maybe we'd listen to a little bit of this. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's kind of like uh, scat and bass together there. It's kind of even odder in my headphones because I heard this on the house stereo. Right, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't hearing it as clearly as I am now. Anyway, Papadopoulos bursts back in for another round of blues, trading off with Skamopoulos getting a round on drums for himself. Sax and piano get alternating rounds with drums too before a final run through the melody with some last piano chimes to end it up. Track three is Spirituality. Ludus gets to start this one out with solo bass, uh, really ringing it out for the better part of a minute with some nice bends here. He gets a chugging rhythm implied for the others to jump in on with the tune. It's a minor hard bop melody sounding right out of the Blue Note 1960s. AABA structure with interesting nine measure A sections and a 12 measure contrasting B section with fun accented horn lines. Tuckus's first to solo, really searing in tone and great phrases through this one. Papadopoulos builds a nice trumpet solo on this one too with exciting double-time phrases. Gagastathis makes this one percussive and playful. Let's take a little bit of a listen to his piano solo on this one. Definitely Monk influence there in his playing, right? Once more through the melody with some final phrase repeats and a very pregnant pause before the final note. Track four is Summer at Last. Two drum tom hits bring it in and Gagastathis takes us to Spain with some familiar cadences for 16 measures of piano over some stately pulsing bass from Lutus. The horns are in with the dreamy floating melody lines that stretch over the meter in the fifth and sixth measures. The melody is an A-A-B-A structure with eight measure A sections and a 16 measure B. Papadopoulos solos first on trumpet with some minor modal navigations to start out, and he connects ideas nicely on this one, and Sakas impresses again with tone and energy on the sax solo on this one. Let's check out a bit of this sax solo so you can hear this wonderful tone that Sakas has. Agastathus gets some animated lines and bluesiness in his solo in this one, and I like the way Scamopolis mixes things up on the drums underneath. Ludus has a measured but hauntingly melodic bass solo, and they take another run through the melody to finish it up. Very atmospheric. Track 5 is called The Beauty Inside. This one has a solo intro from Gagasthesis to get it started out, so let's take a listen to how this one gets going.
A nice muted trumpet there, too. Yeah. That's Papadopoulos on the cup muted trumpet. Mm. And Sakas comes in weaving lines and then taking over for sections as well. It's an AABA structure. The 16 measure B section has surprising breaks into double time over walking bass, which feels like a medium swing at this tempo. Very nice trading of horn parts and harmonized lines on this tune. Tsakas builds passion in his solo here, and Papadopoulos takes over on the double-time section of the melody, making good improvised melodic ideas. Gagastathis has an interesting solo on this one, with soft-touched flowing lines into more ringing chord figures. And the horns are back for the B section of the melody and the final A section, and a gentle final piano ending. And the final tune, track six, moving on. Gagastathis starts this one out with eight measures of solo bluesy piano. Everyone is in with the horns picking up that piano idea on the repeating riffy melody. It's an AABA structure, but be ready for the change up on the B section that has alternating staccato horn notes with drum accents and bluesy piano licks. The meter rug is pulled out from under you, but if you can keep counting with the same beat, it's 10 measures before the A section repeats. The solo section sticks on a repeated eight measure progression that sounds different from the melody, twisting to minor from the fifth measure. Tsakas solos first, slinky and sassy, and Papadopoulos gets into speedy lines and some fun chained descending ideas and works it up to some false fingering fun and high cries. Gagastathis has a bouncy solo in the high register, working into more percussive chords and then connecting back to another run through the melody. And that's it. It's a fresh-sounding recording of original compositions in the hard bop tradition. The overall mood is cheerful and fun. Gagastathis' tunes have good melodies with familiar structures, but interesting little twists to surprise you at certain places. The horn lines are well thought out and have nice interplay. Good solos all around. Tsakas really impressing with his alto tone and intensity. Gagastathis' solos are monkishly playful with a nice touch. Only six tunes here, but a reasonable length of 44 minutes, which lets the musicians open up and stretch out on the solos. On a recording debut, I would have liked to have also heard one of his favorite standards done in a unique way, and maybe an original by one of his other piano influences to round things out, but that's just my suggestion. Another Greek jazz musician to keep on our radar in the future. I think so, too. The album impressed me, actually, both in the tone of the musicians and in the recording itself, which is mm. remarkably clear. Um, we can hear every sound on it. The record throughout feels good with bright swinging jazz and beautiful ballads as well. All of the soloing is done with a really clean tone. It all sounds very precise and is appealing for that. I just keep saying the word clear and clean here. I just That was the mm. overall impression I got from this. Uh, the room that they're in sounds perfect. It's present on the instruments, but not so much that you lose the tone. And I found the uh, bass solo in track two to be rather odd on the recording. That's the one that you sampled <laughs> because of the scatting. Um, right. It's a good solo. Um, the bass is singing along. I don't know if they intended to catch him on that, but uh, I, I think that was, it was interesting, inevitable. Yeah. yeah, I'd call this a pleasant, comfortable record, and it, it hit the spot. It was really good. Yeah, let's hear some more. Don't make us wait too long. <laughs> for yeah, the let's next hear some more. Yeah. Yeah, we need more tracks on this. <laughs> no, it's cool. It was. It's a reasonable length at forty-four yeah, minutes. I think. No that's like a... All right, that was our first debut, and the next recording is a return, and that's the title actually, "The Return," from drummer Joel Haynes. This is on Cellar Live. It came out 
on September 8th. Joe Haynes is a Toronto-based drummer who's been playing the drums since age seven. He received a National Jazz Award in 2003 and was invited to perform with Oscar Peterson and Dave Young for the Toronto Tsunami Relief Benefit January 2005. His previous releases, also on Cellar Live, The Time Is Now, 2005, and Transitions, 2008, and hence the 15-year wait until this new recording. So it is a return, and it's well worth the wait. Joel Haynes, the leader on drums, the great Seamus Blake, British-born Canadian tenor saxophonist, joins in on this recording. We've got Neil Swainson on bass and Tilden Webb on piano. I'm going to start the recording out with a Haynes original, The Return, the title track. And it bursts right in with an eight-measure intro of repeated syncopated bass and left-hand piano figures as Haynes works the rhythm with cymbal and tight snare figures. Blake comes in with the melody phrase that gets some rhythm stops and an answer from that bass and piano line. It's 32 measures in four eight-measure sections, and if you listen to the lines, you'll hear that the phrase endings are different in the bass and sax lines, going up the first time and then down on the repeats. Let's check out how this melody gets going. As you hear, Blake continues on soloing, intense and fluid. Haynes adds big hits of accents to the charging groove over Swainson's bass walk. Webb solos next. I like how his snappy phrases connect ideas, building to percussive chords. Back to the intro idea for a vamp for Haynes to work around the kit on some really tight drumming. And Blake joins in on the riff until they hit the melody for a final round. The final phrase repeats to a surprise ending. Uh, a rhythmically intense and exciting tune to start things out. Track two is also a Haynes original, Peregrination. This one starts with an eight measure intro two, ringing piano chords and fills over bass intervals and Haynes' drum decorations. Blake comes in with the melody phrases over the 32 measure melody that has some different chord changes in each section. Nice fills and tom tastes from Haynes on the way. And Blake continues on soloing again on this one. The groove kind of inspires a nice airiness and space between phrases, and Blake works in bursts of energetic ideas with some searing double-time phrases. Webb follows on piano, working phrases in the groove into more reaching ideas. It settles back into the intro idea with tasty drum fills and into another round of the melody. And Blake blows for the first 24 measures and then drops out for a vamp around the final section where Haynes gets to work around the kit with more tight ideas and then Blake joins back in to build it up to the end. Track 3, also a Haynes original there and back, a solo piano intro of blocky syncopated chords. Bass and drums kick in for another go around the pattern, then it changes up to the main melody that begins with alternating chords in the piano and bass. Blake adds sax on the way, and it switches off to walking bass for Webb to take over on piano. It resets to the chord idea, and this time Blake continues through with the sax. I'm not really sure of the structure here, 
but the first time is 34 measures and then 36 measures. Blake continues on for a solo with hard-swinging phrases and intense tone, speedy figures and high cries along the way. Webb is next with a solo that has exciting rhythms and nice melodic ideas. This was a real solo highlight for me, so I'd like to share it with you here. really in the flow there. <laughs> I hate to stop it in the middle, but go and listen to the whole thing, please. And that's always the case, really. Huh? Yep. Things come down soft then for a bass solo from Swainson with a deep tone, fierce attack and mix of rhythmic ideas. And they end it up with the second half of the melody from before with the sax continuing on to a final hold. Whoa, track four, an unexpected cover, The Beatles. Tomorrow hmm. Never Knows, the most experimental and psychedelic track from the 1966 Revolver recording. You know, the way that it was composed and also produced, this was a tune that the Beatles could never have really done live. You know, right. I think they had stopped yeah. playing live at this point. And it's got all the special effects and tape manipulation. You, know, you wouldn't be able to pull that off. But there's no sitars or bird calls on this hmm. version here. And actually... They give it a rather sunny atmosphere with a little happy bass riff and dreamy chords over a clicky drum groove to get things going. Blake blows the John Lennon vocal melody very smoothly. And I know you want to hear what this <laughs> yeah, is going to sound like. Not. So let's just get this started out. Webb has a slowly building piano solo here over the changing modes with accents from Haynes and snappy bass from Swainson. Blake follows him, starting placid but working into more fluttery ideas. And Swainson gets a bass solo too, deeply ringing and melodic. Then Blake's back with some melody and mixed in improvisations. The opening bass riff returns for some vamping with sax to a fade out. And I think this one is a suitable fade out. Don't you think, Mike? Um. Yeah, I thought this was. Yeah, yeah. it's not I'm like just, soloing is going on. Mike always gets. I get upset when there's a fade, the, uh, yeah, fade out. But this is. It is a originally a pop song after all. All right, the next track five comes from the pen of the pianist Tilden Webb. Here it's Secret Garden 
Webb gets it started out with a solo piano opening of rhythmic chords for four measures. It's in 6-8 meter, and the bass and drums join in for a repeat with delicate cymbals dancing. Blake comes in with a legato melody that has an uplifting quality to it. It seems to be 31 measures, with the first 11-measure melodic idea repeating into different sections. There are some nice swaying bass figures at the end of the melody, and Blake continues on for a solo, working aggressively and into the high register a lot. He gets a lot of things going on in this one. Webb follows with the solo, including a lot of nicely ringing high register lines. Swainson gets a melodic bass solo that reaches up high, and they work through the melody again with some final flurries at the end from Blake. Trek 6 is another Haynes original, Allure, a really swinging minor hard bop tune here. Blake has the solo sax pickup riff to get it started. It's 32 measure AABA construction with a clean break at the end of the A section for that sax riff again. The B section is neat with syncopated hits from the others while Haynes takes over on the drums and Blake solos first with some tasty licks exploring the major twisting harmonies on the B section. Webb is next with well-developed piano solo that includes some fun bluesy chords. It comes down quietly for a bass solo from Swainson, who makes it appealing both rhythmically and melodically. And Blake is back for some trading fours with Haynes, so let's check that out at about five and a half minutes so you can hear some of his tight drum work on this track. Once more, around the melody after that wraps up to close out the tune. Track 7 is Angel. This is a tune by the Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin. A cymbal roll brings in the pretty ballad. There's a 16-measure intro with rising bass figures, chiming piano chords, and tom rhythms from Haynes. After a pause, Blake comes in on the legato melody with sensitive phrasing. It's very gentle with another pause to fill with cymbals. As Blake continues into an improvised solo, Haynes changes up to a more clicky groove and then gives more weight as it goes along. Webb has an uplifting solo on this tune on the piano as well, rhythmic with chiming chords, and Blake returns with more melody to take it out to the end with some light dancing cymbal work from Haynes. And the last tune, track eight, is Payback, also Haynes original. This final tune is an intense, fast 12-bar minor blues with bass and piano chord hits and ride cymbals under Blake's melody riffs. The switch to walking bass in the ninth and 10th measures gives it a cool change-up. They go around it twice, and Webb gets to solo first. Haynes' drumming and fills underneath are super intense. A big chord ending brings in Blake to keep the intense soloing going. All right. We get the drum solo of the record that we've been waiting for. After all, <laughs> Haynes is the leader here. So let's pick it up from a little bit after three minutes to hear what that's all about. 
And that's it. That's the end of the record. Yeah. A high energy recording. It's a good variety of material from Haynes's original, one from Webb, The Beatles, a Sarah McLaughlin ballad. Haynes is a tight and precise drummer, giving you a lot to listen to in his feels and changing grooves. Seamus Blake sounds great as always, covering moods from smooth to frenzied, and fine solos from Webb and Swainson, who make a great trio with Haynes. The drums sound incredibly clear on this recording, and great overall sonics from Cellar Live, and recommended for all modern jazz fans and drummers looking for tasty inspiration. Yeah, I, I had energetic drumming on this album from Joel Haynes all the way through. He always hits the drums really hard in yeah, his solos, yeah. and... You know, my I grew up with rock and roll, so that always really appeals to me. I really like hard hitting drummers. Yeah, heavy hitter. Um, mm. But he's subtle when everyone else is up front too. So he's I like this kind of drummer. The other players contrast with him quite a bit, especially the piano, who's all class and warmth in his solos. Mm. Not to say, <laughs> not to say that Haynes isn't classy. He is, but I'm just kind of using this word to give like a kind of feeling for what right. the uh, the piano does. You know, he's warm and sounds great. Uh, he steps out on Allure with a more lively swinging solo. And I've got to say Allure was my favorite track on the oh. album. The bass has real presence in his deep sound, and the sax is powerful as well, sort of in line with the drums. I feel like they were kind of like partners in crime, right. sort of. It's an energetic album as a result of the drums' propulsion, and a pretty exhilarating listen, I thought. Interesting, one of the least heavy songs in the album was Tomorrow Never Knows, right, which yeah. is really full of <laughs> crashing energy on the Beatles recording. Yeah. Uh, this was an interesting take on it, and it's an appealing album throughout that had me really grooving all the way mm. through. Yeah, high energy, good, and great sound on Cellar Live. I definitely recommend you check that one out. Okay. Now, our final recording is on Odredek, as I mentioned earlier. Now, Odredek is an interesting label because they do both classical and jazz, but they don't put out a lot of recordings. And they have an interesting process of artist selection. The artists are selected through a democratic blind judging platform by other artists already on the label. So the catalog is based purely on musicality rather than image or background of the artists themselves. And we've done a few other recordings, as I mentioned, the Spiral Trio recording. And we also did a classical recording, Iberian Impressions from Paolo Oliveira. Yeah, we heard from him too. He wrote right. to us, which was really nice. He he never followed up though. He said he was going to, he wanted to discuss like what we said and then he never followed yeah. up. Yeah. Hmm. That was back in episode 72, We Hear You, Iberia. <laughs> right. <laughs> we titles. Hear you, yeah. Iberia. That's a good one. Yeah. And we also did another jazz recording by the French octet, kind of a Mingus-inspired compositions, High Octane, by the Octet La Nocturne. That was back in episode 111. Oh, yeah. Mercurial Moods, a really fun recording. That was hot stuff. It was really, it was uh, really they're, good. they're counting a lot and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. I really liked that one. Yeah. Yeah. And now we got a new one on Audre Deck. This is by drummer Tony Addison. It's called Relentless Pursuit. It came out September 8th. Now, Addison's a drummer from Washington, D.C. This is his jazz debut. He studied music at Washington Music Conservatory. He's a former boxer, artist, and dancer who found Jesus and came to God. And although he always loved jazz music, his first recording was one of gospel music. It's called He Is Love came out in 2010. And so now he's debuting in jazz on Odredek label. So Addison's on drums and all the compositions here also produced the recording. We've got William Knowles on piano, who also arranged the music. Dave Marsh on bass, 
Frankie Addison, Tony's brother on soprano and tenor saxophone. They also have a Addison Brothers Quartet. You can find videos on YouTube if you want to check that out. Michael Thomas, trumpet on tracks one, two, and four. Also six, seven, eight, and nine. And then Michael Fitzhugh on trumpet tracks three, four, and five. And Reginald Zinche on trombone. The first track, Never Say Never. We're off to an exciting and interesting start. Addison's drums kick in the full blast horn melody. Uh, there are four bar horn phrases we hear three times with big drum fills underneath. The last beat of that 12 measure section is actually the start of a switch up to four measures of 6-8 feel that's traced out in the cymbals with some more horn lines. Let's check that out. start right there. It goes through those patterns again as you hear and into a final section of horns with a cool triplet pattern into a drum fill and a final horn blast of that first lick to get Knowles set into a piano solo. Now we're going straight ahead in 4-4 over walking bass but Addison is keeping things interesting with big accents during Knowles ideas on the piano and a skittering triplet transition into Frankie Addison's tenor solo. He's charged up with an intense tone and speedy lines on the sax they make a fun quick stop time effect at the end of his solo into Sinchi's trombone solo. And he starts smooth but builds up with little rhythmic pauses and some harmonic tensions. And they go through the melody sections with a hold at the end of the horn triplet line for some big tom fills from Addison and piano trickles to end it up. Track two is called Inner Thoughts. Frankie Addison switches to soprano sax for this one and makes an intro over minor descending bass figures and cymbal accents. There's a little pause before the main melody, and his soprano starts it out with a repeating 8-measure A section, then the trumpet and trombone join in for the 18-measure long next section that ends with a solo break into soprano sax solo. It drives with a swing feel over the first sections and then changes up to a Latin feel for the second section. He gets some unique pleading and chirpy ideas working up to a climax, and Knowles follows with a piano solo that has a lot of descending triplet lines and ringing chords. All the horns are in from the start on the final melody section that ends with an outro matching the intro and then a soprano sax little cadenza with a final chord over bowed bass. Track three is called Uncharted Soul. A drum fill gets it started and then get ready for some uncharted compositional changes. The first <laughs> eight measure section is a medium swing with a kind of an easy cool jazz like major theme with a little ornamental turns on the horn lines. Things take a minor turn with a kind of reggae impression for 16 measures of more legato horn lines. Then there's eight measures of fanfare-like horn figures over drum fills into an extra measure and a final section of around 12 measures of repeating minor horn riffs and drum fills. It's kind of an <laughs> unexpected little change-up, mm. so let's check it out.
change-ups going on there. The solos keep it simple, however, alternating eight measures of the major swing with the eight measures of the minor straight groove. Michael Fitzhughes on the trumpet first with a nice tone and relaxed phrasing over the different grooves. Cynthia follows on trombone, working up the tension with rhythmic licks. And Frankie Addison comes next on tenor sax with some nice pleading notes. The melody picks up from the minor horn fanfare section and continues around once more from the more legato horn line section, skipping the swing to a powerful horn fanfare ending. Track four, chicken and hot sauce. Well, those are two of my favorite things and best served together. Uh, this gets going with a four-measure intro of ringing piano chords over skittering drums, hi-hat, I think. Then there are alternating happy horn line sections and a New Orleans-style drum beat, four measures each for a couple rounds and some bendy bass glisses underneath. A longer 16-measure horn section brings it back to the intro idea and more new horn and drum section alternations leading to a bass solo from Marsh over that New Orleans beat. Michael Thomas gets a cup-muted trumpet solo with an exciting old-time feel, and Frankie Addison follows on tenor sax, getting some stop time to wind him up before the end. Since she gets a fun trombone solo next, into some more horn lines, and then a drum solo from Addison, and some final horn interaction to end it all up. Track 5 is the title track, Relentless Pursuit. This one starts out with a drum solo, Addison mixing it up around the kit. He foreshadows the rapid-fire repeating horn licks that are going to come in with tom figures. Those work into four-measure sections of alternating swing and Latin beat with the horn lines and minor spy-themed piano chords. <laughs> this is another one you've got to just hear to see how things get going. Uh, <laughs> harmonies in there. Yeah, the right. so it, after that little uh, spy theme diversion there, the beat breaks up into some whole band cacophony, but then it restarts with the toms and rapid fire horn lines. Since she's up right away for a trombone solo with some fast slide work and a big tone, Frankie Addison's next with an aggressive tenor sax solo, and he gets some trumpet and trombone backing lines on the way, and Knowles gets a piano solo after that with some charming Latin figures. Uh, then Michael Fitzhugh gets a cool Latin-style trumpet solo at the end of this one, and the rapid-fire horn lines and drums return to end it right after that. Track 6 is New Horizon, and things change up on this one for a bossa tune. Addison's got a clicky groove going under the sunny trombone melody from Cincha. It's 24 measures with two halves to it, really. Then all the horns are in 
for a different melody arrangement for another 24 measures over fills from Addison. There's an attractive switch to minor chords on the way. Cynthia gets a trombone solo next to big sound but relaxed phrasing, adding some speedy 16th note phrases. And Knowles has a piano solo that starts out with pretty trickling phrases and has good runs and chiming chords. Marsh has a really singing bass solo with a nice tone on this tune as well. And we hear the earlier horn melody again. And then Cinchi gets a little trombone cadenza to take it to a warm and fluffy ending. Track seven is called The Journey. Addison's toms kick it into a clicky Latin groove for an eight measure section of unison horn figures. The horns go on for eight more measures of stop time and then get a longer 24 measure section together where Addison has got a heavier rock beat going and fills the gaps. Since she gets a trombone solo first and the groove again evolves from clicky to heavy as he has some fun with syncopated repeated notes. Frankie Addison gets a tenor solo next getting some speedy sections over big fills from Tony. And Michael Thomas is next on trumpet, taking a more measured approach and building ideas up, finishing with some puckish staccato ideas. The horn melody sections return, but in the final long section, they stretch it out for some drum soloing with added descending horn figures. Then they vamp out on the final section for Sinchi to get some more trombone improvisations worked up before the end with some extended tom fills on the drums. Track eight, Transformation. A drum fill brings it in, and the melody is made up of different eight measure sections of minor horn lines over big drum fills from Addison. The form is A-A-B-B-A, and then a different final 13 measure section of more mechanical sounding horn lines with pauses that build up the tension before it bursts into a swing over walking bass for a tenor sax solo from Frankie Addison. He's got a good feeling of swinging intensity here, since she follows with a playful slide work on the trombone, and Michael Thomas gets a trumpet solo as well, building up tension with extended lines of ideas. Next, Knowles' piano picks up the mechanical horn lick for a vamp over descending double-stop bass figures as Addison gets to work up on the drum kit. The horns join back in one by one on the lick to build it up, and then they give the section the hesitated ending we heard before and continue on with the A sections of the melody. But Addison isn't done yet, getting some extra drum work in before a final piano chord. And track nine, the final cut, Cool Breeze. A roll and hit bring the horns in on a minor melody. It goes through different short sections where the drums change up from shuffle to fills to swing to shuffle and a final short Latin double time section that launches a tenor sax solo from Frankie Addison over a driving shuffle. Let's check out the beginning of how this gets going as well.
changes and grooves going on in this too. That little Latin shift comes back at the end of each solo, and we hear from Cinchi on trombone, Michael Thomas on trumpet, Knowles on piano, and Marsh on bass. They take it through all the melody sections and then stick on the Latin groove for Knowles to decorate with some piano, ending it with a couple horn blasts and tom fills. And that wraps up the recording. It's an energetic and an entertaining recording. Addison's original compositions are very unorthodox in composition structure, so you're never quite sure what's coming next, but there's a charming sense of immediacy and raw energy throughout the recording. Addison's got lots of different feels and grooves going. There's swing, rocky feels, Latin, New Orleans shuffle, and sometimes you get all several different grooves in one tune. The solos are exciting, showing off the individual musical personalities of each player well. And check it out. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what he comes up with next. Okay, so this is a drummer-led band, and for a change, it's the drummer who stands out, because usually drummers kind of lay back and give the other guys the chance to shine. A lot of great musicians often come from bands that are led by drummers, right. just because they get the spotlight all the time, really, I think. Addison does that, too. I mean, he lays back and gives the other guys a chance to shine, too. But he's also like constantly drawing your ear with all sorts of trick me rhythmic patterns, like you yeah. said in the last track, the, the uh, rhythm changes and changes between sections, man, it really yeah. keeps you... <laughs> listening to him and just listening to these compositions. This is especially the case I see, well, you had mentioned um, Cool Breeze, but I pulled out Chicken and Hot Sauce. Yeah. Um, the title as well as that's the whole tune stood out for me where he, he gets yeah. a lot of time to solo and he's got fills between the tracks like harmonic spaces. He'll just peek in right. whenever there's a space. The trombone player also um, stood out for me because he has this great sense of humor. Like when he played his solos, there, there there's a bit of comedy in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was happy every time I heard him in the spotlight. Check out the journey where he makes a meal of repeated notes, sometimes obsessively repeating them and playing with the rhythm when he mm -hmm. does that. I, I can't, maybe in chicken and hot sauce also. The, the rhythm is mostly swinging in this, even though there are a lot of like changes. So it's really enjoyable for that. There's nothing not to like here. And I think the drumming especially made it stand out. Yeah, listen for that trombone comedy too. I think he has some really interesting phrasing. He's always trying to... He's, he's like one of those guys. He just He's presented with something. He has to kind of do something funny about it. You know? He had a lot of cool, repeated, mm -hmm. rhythmic ideas. And then right. he also, he likes to lay on tension-building pitches. Right. You know, he's climbing a scale, but he's doing it slowly. So yeah. you're going to experience building tension. You know, the tension yeah. before the release. And that was kind of fun. Yeah, that's, that's a real classical thing to do, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so exciting recording with uh, unique tunes and structures. Uh, if you try to listen and uh, figure out, you'll find some unique stuff going on there. And uh, I enjoyed trying to figure out exactly what was putting together all those different parts and those tunes that he wrote. Well, there you go. That wraps it up for episode 132. And as we said, next week we've got that special guest episode, the standards summit with the same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard so don't miss that i'll put up a playlist for that too you can catch the recordings there's just three there's the reval recording and two jazz standards recordings if you want to check them out before you hear us talk about them with johnny and aj yeah we didn't come up with a title for today's episode while we talked did we not quite yet no all right we'll think of something so as always Thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And next we can get those three recordings. And after that, well, we've both got a lot of 
recordings to pick from because there's a lot of fall releases right. in yeah. classical and jazz. So we have some idea, probably, but we've got enough things to hold us through for probably a good month yeah. or so. Yeah, so. but classical's going crazy with the double albums, though, so right. I don't know what we're going to do about yeah. that. We'll have to space them out. Yeah, one, one per episode. Right. I, I would do an all an all double album episode if we had like, free time. That'd be yeah. fun. Anyway, you can check out those playlists to find out what's coming up. You'll find them on Deezer, also a link from our Facebook page. So do come over and check that out. And be sure to check out next week's episode because that's going to be a lot of fun. And so as always, until next time, thanks for listening. And we'll see you again for episode 133 next week. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week and we take a standard and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. 